This episode has been brought to you by Always Discreet. Head to alwaysdiscreet.com.au to learn more about bladder leak tips, management, and incredible bladder leak protection. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. In today's episode, I am welcoming back the ever-lovely Fiona Rogers to talk about neuromuscular electrical stimulation, or what some people know as e-stim, for the pelvic floor. When is it appropriate to use? What kind of parameters should we be thinking about? What kind of probes should we be thinking about? She was running this as a face-to-face course. I'm sure that those will come back, but of course it's a, a crazy time in the world. So now to make it easier for everyone, this is now offered online for physiotherapists. So we get a little bit nerdy. Well, she does, not me. I'm still trying to work it all out in order to understand it. And I hope that everybody enjoys this episode and check out the show notes if you want to find out more. Thank you so much for giving your time. I know that you have been busy doing so many things, um, but I know that you have put your heart and soul and brilliant mind into the research supporting the use of electrical stimulation for pelvic floor physiotherapy, and I don't know enough about it. Thank you for having me, Laurie. It's nice to be back with you. Um, Okay, so um, if people haven't listened to your other podcasts, they need to go back and listen to them because your background is there. Um, But so my introduction to electrical stimulation, I don't even know when I started to learn about it. I will admit I actually don't use it a lot. And the biggest part, the biggest reason I don't is because I just don't know enough about it. Um, and yeah, that, that's the case with a lot of people. And I think, because uh, I'm just a little bit older than you, uh, when I went through uni, only a little, when I went through uni, we did an entire year of electrotherapy agents. So we, we learnt everything and used everything. And what I found, uh, certainly through, uh, you know, having our website, Pelvic Floor Exercise, is I'm constantly asked questions by people, you know, what's the protocol for this? What's the protocol for that? What should I be doing? Um, and it became very evident that um, the, the depth of knowledge was quite broad when it came to electrotherapy. And I think that's because that pendulum, and I talk about the pendulum at the beginning of my course, um, and that's the reason that that course was created. Um, the pendulum has swung so far from where we learned everything right through to there was that period of time where Um, you didn't put a machine on a patient or if you did you weren't a real physio and then it was sort of hands off and that pendulum I think has kind of swung back towards the middle somewhat um, perhaps where it should be Um, but then that left whole generations of physios only getting a very small amount of um, EPA um, lectures at uni or exposure to it even in in clinics so that's why I set about thinking well if I put it all together uh, in a course, then um, you know I can direct people towards that, and I can answer all of those questions. So that's kind of where 
things stand, I think. And also the research with a lot of the EPA, you know, some of it's good, some of it's not so good. What's becoming obvious to me, having read one or two papers about it now, is that I think, you know, in a lot of cases, it's perhaps the parameters weren't as, as they should be or the protocols weren't perhaps as good as they could have been. And in a lot of it too, um, the outcome measures that were used were probably, I don't know, I think in some ways a little bit biased towards what they were putting it up against, like a, a drug therapy when you're looking at TENS. Um, and certainly uh, things like pelvic floor muscle training, I think some of those papers have been somewhat misinterpreted and have come out as, you know, only pelvic floor muscle training works. Whereas in a lot of the papers, it actually shows an equal efficacy for, um, for a lot of groups. So it's, we, we, there's no doubt that pelvic floor muscle training is our go-to gold standard. It's got the research behind it. But there's certainly research showing that um, electrical stim will work as well, not necessarily as well as but it will certainly work for a, um, you know, a certain group of, of patients. I just think there's been a bit of a misinterpretation in, in some of the, the research. And I think what we need to learn is to look through it and work out which patients we should be using it for, because the general consensus now with TENS and with, uh, certainly when we're looking at pelvic health, TENS and uh, electrical stimulation, last resort. So, and I think most people will admit that that they'll do everything else, oh, nothing's working, so I'll pull out the stim machine. They then use one of the preset programs, which... Um, the only ones they've tried. Um, you know, <laughs> they're, they're not ideal. And yeah. um, so they use that, and that's not necessarily suitable for that patient. So the patient's not compliant or, you know, it's uncomfortable for them. They try it a couple of times, they come back, patient hasn't used it because it's uncomfortable. So the machine gets thrown back in the cupboard, oh, that doesn't work. So if it didn't work for that patient, it's not going to work for anybody. Uh, that seems to be the story that I hear. If you learn the principles behind all of the parameters, how to use them, how they affect um, nerve and muscle fibres, then you can work out what the best protocol for that patient is. And learning to adjust the parameters and set a custom program, to me, is the key to it. And if you can do that, you'll have a compliant patient and you're more likely to have success with that patient. So you're telling us we should understand what we're using and why. Uh, hmm. Pretty much, yes. Pretty much. Go figure. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> now, and in, in fact, in your, um, yeah, go on. Sorry, in your course, do you talk about TENS and muscle stim? Yes. Is that part it, of uh, the... The two that I talk about, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought today we would just focus on the muscle stim side of things. And obviously, we can't cover everything people want to know, need to know in an hour. So if they really want to know more, they will have to go and check that out. And I will put links in the show notes for that. Uh, what do you find is kind of, or is there kind of a, a main dysfunction within the pelvic floor that we're looking to use muscle stim with? Well, essentially, yes, those with a, um, and what the research has, has looked at is those with a low level of, um, of strength. So uh, modified Oxford scale of 0 to 1 is what some of the research says. So um, generally the accepted use of it is someone's got a weak pelvic floor, they're having trouble um, instigating or facilitating a contraction that uh, you can then use STEM uh, to, to start that process. The other group that there's absolutely no research on, and this just comes purely from clinical experience and, and feedback, is 
in my view, is that group, small group of patients who you just can't, they've got a contraction, you can feel it, um, you know, when you're doing a VE and they're getting that reflex action. For example, when they cough, they'll, they'll contract. But when you say, oh, no, no, you know, contract, they can't, they bear down, do the opposite. They just can't get that integration. Um, I've had good success with a few patients that um, I've come across like that using some stim for a very short time to give them that feedback. So I think as a feedback tool for short periods of time, it can also be effective. But uh, the generally accepted, if you're looking at electrical stim, we're looking at it for um, you know, muscle strengthening. Just before we go any further, can you just say you're not wanting to talk about TENS, just as a little taster, perhaps, there is really, really good evidence using TENS for overactive bladders and particularly using it in the form of TTNS. So, um, you know, I think that's a, a big area where TENS um, can be very applicable when you're looking at pelvic health patients. And a whole podcast and on its own. <laughs> I could say easily, I, mean, I could talk about it for ages. And that's, that's the topic I've spoken about at several um, medical conferences as well. Um, in workshops relating to overactive bladder and the, you know, talking about, there's always someone talking about percutaneous. I talk about um, transcutaneous and then there's, you know, someone talking about medication, Botox um, and SNS. So, um, yeah, there, there is some really good research there. And I would also say watch this space um, as far as pain management goes, particularly with the opioid crisis, um, you know, and looking at, at other forms of, um, of pain management it's certainly uh, making a big comeback there. Um, and there's a heap of neuromodulation research going on um, in all sorts of areas at the moment. So, um, you know, that is an area that's growing. And I think that something that we need to understand as physios, no matter what part of the body you're treating, that we need to understand the principles behind that because we will be seeing patients coming through uh, using it in various forms. Again, a whole other podcast that we need to do on that to cover that or, or to do your course, which is on my list. Um, and is that out yet? This probably won't go out for a couple weeks anyway, but is the course live online? The course is now live online. So um, my intention had always been to put it online, but the plan was for 2021. That is, again, I'll put the link so that everyone can find it. Um, but so if we're talking about electrical stimulation and if we think of the patients, like you said, regardless of what pelvic floor dysfunction they have, if you are trying to get them to have awareness and increase their pelvic floor muscle strength or endurance or function, before we kind of get into a little bit more detail about that, how does... How does electrical stimulation actually work? Well, effectively, you're artificially stimulating the muscle to contract. So instead of the, um, the pulse coming from the brain down the spinal cord, it's actually coming from the direct contact of the electrode with the, um, the muscle into the motor units and causing contraction. So one of the... Um, you know, there's a lot of theories of it, how it works. And one of them is actually that we're just putting more um, sensory motor input in. And they've, they've done, and a lot of the research, in fact, has been done on um, with functional electrical stim with um, stroke patients and also large muscle studies in the sort of musk orthopedic um, arena as far as how it works. So we do extrapolate somewhat that that's the same way that it works within the pelvic floor. 
So, um, you know, there are theories and some of it is just that waking up the muscle, that awareness um, through the, the sensory motor cortex. Um, but you do get that actual contraction of the, uh, of the muscle from the electrode interface with the, with the muscle. So that means that you have to have a muscle that is present and has a nerve Innovation. supply. Yes, that's yes. a more yes. technical term. Thank you. <laughs> um, you can stimulate denervated muscle, but you need much longer pulse widths um, and you need to do like you're doing it directly. So um, it can be quite uncomfortable. So in the, in, and when we're talking about using in the pelvic floor on the whole, yes, we have um, innovation there. It's just that we don't have contraction. There is also some evidence that using it um, early on will help with axonal sprouting. So if you've got a neuropraxia, using some electrical stimulation can actually speed up that healing process. What so might that's cause a neuropraxia? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, if we're talking pelvic floor, we're talking vaginal birth, you yeah. know, muscle okay. um, yeah, compression checking. and stretching. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I think that's one of the places that perhaps we don't use it um, where we could possibly be helping our patients earlier because certainly postnatally it just seems to be, oh, well, we try everything else, you know, nine months down the tracks, so we're still not where we think we should be. Let's try some STEM. Whereas, you know, if we bring that in earlier, we can possibly, well, two things, we can possibly be assisting any um, uh, recovery from the neuropraxia, but we can also be building up some um, muscle bulk and strength to help support the, you know, the pelvic organs during those early stages. And um, new mums still have to lift babies and they still have to do, um, you know, general um, ADLs, etc. So in some ways, I wonder if we're doing a disservice to our patients by not you know, for those who are in that neuropraxia um, group, that we might be doing them a disservice by not bringing it in earlier. Is, is thinking about, or is just giving them pelvic floor muscle exercises not enough, or does the muscle stim make this kind of happen faster and have even more added benefits? That's the theory, yes. So, I mean, it's, it, I'm not saying that every postnatal mum should be given it, but if you've got a lady who's got an obvious neuropraxia and she's not progressing, you know, obviously we're going to try um, active voluntary pelvic floor training first. But if you've got someone who's just not progressing, um, they're not um, improving in their MOS or if you're using, for example, Peritron, et cetera, to, to track their progress, then they're not progressing then you know, I, I just certainly think we should be looking at perhaps bringing it in a bit earlier with those ladies to just give them that boost along um, until they recover and until they've got a decent voluntary contraction. Because in the, as I said, in, in like for total knee replacements, et cetera, in the orthopedic world, they actually use, if you've got, um, this is probably getting off postnatal a little bit and looking more at prolapse, but um, if you've, with a inhibited quads muscle, they do use it quite a bit to retrain the muscles post pre-op and post-op. So if we've got something like a, a prolapse, which is inhibiting the levator ani from contracting, um, and then you say have surgery, and you know it should be, that's one of the questions I sort of tend to ask, should we be using it post-op to help build up that muscle strength in the initial stages like they do with, with the large muscle groups? Um, and again, that's something that's just not really in the literature. 
and um, you know something that perhaps we should be considering again i'm not saying for every patient but for those who just aren't progressing uh, with our normal voluntary um, muscle uh, pelvic floor muscle training should we be looking at bringing it earlier because as I say, the general consensus seems to be um, you know bring it uh, leave it as a last resort nothing else has worked so um, and it's interesting because i start my course and i've, I've included this in the in online one um, there's a really lovely book that was printed in or um, published in 1922 um, and it's looking at electrotherapy and it's reflecting back on um, in this section on a, a talk that was given back in 1847 and it just the beautiful language of those days but it talks about um, you know that the electrical therapy even back then it's only ever used in last resort cases, etc. And I kind of use that quote to say, you know, has anything changed since 1840, 1847? And basically from what, you know, the feedback I get is no, people do leave it to last resort or, or just completely hopeless cases. And um, mainly because people don't understand it. And then that comes back to our training. And it's not the fault of, you know, any of the universities or lecturers or whatever. It's just the way our profession has sort of progressed. Um, like I said at the beginning, I am one of those people that, you know, use it as a last resort. Um, mm. I'd probably, you know, send my colleagues a very last minute, um, very quick message going, I'm just with a patient now <laughs> and quick question, but should I use this or can I use this with them? Because I've tried all these other things for a period of time and nothing's working. What do I do? Um, I get a few messages like that. <laughs> yeah. And again, that happens because I just don't, I don't know enough. Um, I don't know enough about it. So if again, we're thinking of that patient, like you were talking about where, you know, they don't have a lot of muscle strength and we're going to try to use it early in that kind of postnatal period. There's a couple different probes, right? Because we're talking about yeah. using muscle stimulation inside the vagina, not external to the vagina. It's in the vagina, Correct. but it's still external stimulation. Is that right? Well, yes, because you're not sticking, you're not doing um, needle um, yeah. percutaneous yet. And that's, that's the other thing is people tend to use the same electrode for everybody. And you know, one of but, the sorry, the you... not the same as in like the same oh, no, type no, no, of electrode, no. okay, but not yes. okay. <laughs> okay. the same type of electrode for each patient. Okay. Yes, each patient needs to have their own electrode, but that patient can keep reusing their own electrode. But absolutely, they're, they're single person use only. So, yeah, we'll get that one out of the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, but there are different, and the, the difference so there's different shaped ones, and there are different um, sized ones. And so that's where, um, again, that's a question I get asked a lot, which electrode should I use uh, for my patients? But I also get um, people's patients um, contact saying, I've seen the physio and they've told me to get a, um, an electrode and a machine. Which one do I buy? And we're going, well, I haven't done a VE on you, so I don't know what your Levada hiatus width is. And that's the crucial thing. You have to match the electrode to the patient's anatomy because you need to get, you need to be able to close the circuit. So your electrode needs to be in contact on both sides of the, uh, the vagina and then hence the, the um, Levada ani. Everyone should know this by now. 
As a physiotherapist, I do not believe in telling women with urinary incontinence just to wear a pad or a liner and keep pushing through. I also don't believe that they have to stop doing the exercise and activities that they love forever in order to manage it. I know how important pelvic floor exercises are, I know how important modifications to risk factors are, and I know how important education is in helping to treat urinary incontinence. But I also know how extremely important promoting physical activity is. We have the highest quality evidence demonstrating that physiotherapists can greatly improve or often cure incontinence. But I also know that this management takes time and for some women, while it might improve their leaking by 80%, sometimes they will still have leaking or there will be a subset of women that we can't help enough. This is why I feel incontinence pads and liners still have a place and I am honored to be asked to partner up with Always Discreet to help break the stigma around incontinence, empower and support women to start conversations about bladder leakage, provide the best information on management and also provide options to decrease embarrassing accidents that they may continue to have. So follow the hashtag WeAlwaysGotYou which is we, W-E-E, join in on the conversation and as professionals continue to educate women about how we can help. So it's not skin introitus that it's in contact with. It's not superficial bulbospongiosis. It's levator ani that these machines or these probes are in contact with that's activating. That's what we're aiming for. You can certainly have an electrode um, partially inserted and use it at the introitus. But no, if you're trying to get levator ani, the electrode needs to be fully inserted so that the electrode plates are in contact um, via the vaginal wall with um, with levator ani. So the problem comes when you have someone using a stock standard 25 millimeter width electrode when you've got someone with a, a really wide hiatus. So you need to have, you know, measured your width to then work out which is going to be the the best electrode for that particular patient. And at the moment, unfortunately, the widest electrodes that we can get are about 36 millimetres. And that's the, um, there's one called Periform, but there's there's others very similar to it of of different brands that are the same. Um, So I'm not sort of affiliating here with any particular branding. Um, You can get those wider ones. Uh, yeah, so it really depends on what's your treatment goal, uh, you know, what are you trying to achieve with this patient and, um, you know, getting the, the correct size and basing it on that, not on the cost of the electrode. As far as machines go, it really doesn't matter, but the machines try to sell themselves based on how many whiz-bang preset programs they've got, which really doesn't matter. As long as you can adjust the parameters, the hertz, the, the pulse width um, and the intensity. And I believe the big one you need to be able to adjust is the ramping up as well. So if you've got access, if your machine allows you to set a custom program and allows you to adjust those parameters, then you can do whatever you like. It doesn't matter what machine it is. But a lot of people go by, oh, this one's got you know 11 preset programs or then that one's only got six. So this one must be better. Um, it really doesn't matter to hoots how many presets it's got. And the other thing that can be quite confusing, just whilst that thought's in my mind, the preset programs 
and it, it you know all all machines tend to do this they call them certain things so they'll call them stress incontinence so it's a program for stress incontinence or a program for urgency or a program for endurance and it can be very confusing because if you've got a lady for example who has you know prolapse and part of the reason she has prolapse is some weakness in the pelvic floor and you want her to strengthen she's going to pick up that um, you know instruction book and go oh there's no program here for prolapse what do i do so it's understanding what the particular um, program parameters mean so essentially uh, all the ones that I'm familiar with anyway, the programs that they call stress incontinence are the parameters for strengthening muscle. So they'll be anywhere between um, 20 and 40 hertz usually. The, the stress ones will generally be up around 30 to 40 hertz. Um, the endurance ones will usually be around 20 because 20 hertz uh, is aimed mainly at your slow twitch fibres and the higher the hertz, they're, they're aiming at the, the fast twitch. But that's another whole story because you're, um, when it comes to um, recruiting motor units to make a muscle contract, when you do a voluntary contraction, it follows what we call the Henneman's um, recruitment um, principle. And the slow twitch, small fibres are recruited first and, and then there's a gradual build up in tension and then the slow, uh, fast twitch are, are brought in. Dependent on the load create or the load that is expected of that muscle, the action that's expected. And it's generally accepted that it's a reversal of recruitment when you use electrical stim. So it actually recruits the fast twitch fibres first because they, um, they have a lower threshold to, uh, to recruitment. And that's where it comes in. And we don't have time to go into all that today, but I do go into it all in the course. You, that's why you have to understand the different types of um, nerve fibres, the different types of muscle fibres, and how, what their different thresholds are and how they react. Um, so you, can, you understand how stimulation actually works, if that makes sense. So the general principle, the generally accepted principle is that with a stimulated contraction, you get your fast twitch. So it's an all or nothing. So you get a full on contraction. So that's going to fatigue a lot quicker as well. So you have to take that into account. You also have to take into account that that's likely to cause um, uh, delayed onset muscle soreness as well and accept that that can happen. And I mean, you can get that from just doing a, a voluntary pelvic floor training program um, as well, but it, it's just understanding all of that. So if you've got a patient who comes back and they've, um, perhaps overdone it a little bit and they're sore you go oh dear that's made them sore let's stop doing that <laughs> it just you know you've, it comes back to the same principles that we use with with other programs you know you've got to get your dose right and that's the other thing where the research probably has let things down somewhat when you're looking at the dosage you need to uh, get the frequency and the intensity correct so if you're giving a um, let's just take, say we've got a knee that we're rehabbing and we give them, we dose their exercise program. We give them a frequency as in how many times to do it. And we give them an intensity, you know, how strongly to do it or what weight to do. If you don't get that dose right, if you underdose them, they're not going to improve. If you overdose them, excuse the, the expression, but if you give them too much, you're going to make them sore, you're going to put them backwards. And it's exactly the same with EPA. You've got to get that frequency or the hertz right and you've got to get the intensity and the milliamps right. Otherwise, you're not going to get the effect of the dose. Same as when you had to take a medication. If you don't take the correct dosage, you're not going to get the effect that you're after. 
So it's learning to work that out that is cr um, crucial when it comes to using any form of neuromodulation. Is the intensity not just based on their sensation or are you presetting that and then what are they pushing up and down? No, you, you, your intensity is, yeah, it is what they're feeling, but you need to, depending on whether you're using TENS or electrical stim, you need to get that intensity correct. So if you're aiming for a muscle contraction, you have to get the intensity high enough for the muscle to contract. And that's another thing that you know, I often get people contacting me saying, oh, but I've got them up to 20 milliamps and nothing's happening. A lot of women for their pelvic floor are going to need to get up around 50, 60 milliamps to get a contraction. So where that also, the, where the understanding needs to come in, when you do a voluntary muscle contraction, there's no, no great sensory aspect to it. Like, you know, I can contract my elbow and, and get my biceps working and I'm not actually, I, I haven't got a lot of intense sensation there from that. Whereas if I had electrodes on there contracting my biceps, there's the sensory aspect. As we all know, you put an electrode on, you get that tingling sensation, and which, um, which builds up depending on what hertz and, and intensity you're using. So there's that trade-off with getting a voluntary, uh, sorry, a, a stimulated contraction. There's that trade-off of sensation. So the higher you go in the milliamps, the more sensation you're getting. And that will become uncomfortable at some point. So you can only go so high with it. Um, and then that can relate to the hertz that you're using. So the higher the hertz, the more intense it's going to feel. Now, a lot of the research with the pelvic floor has been done around 50 hertz. And I have yet to come across a machine with a preset at 50. The highest they tend to go is 40. And if you actually try it on yourself, 50 is quite intense. So it's getting, you know, it comes back to that dosage that, um, you know, getting the correct hertz and the correct intensity to get a comfortable contraction. So again, if you don't know how to manipulate those, then you can send a patient home with it and they might be, whoa, this is really uncomfortable. I'm not using this anymore. Whereas you might, if you bring those hertz down a little bit, it might be more comfortable for that patient. Or if you do things like adjust the ramp up, which is how quickly it gets up to the intensity that you're using. Um, if it's a very short ramp up, it will be a very sudden, intense contraction. Whereas if you increase that, you'll gradually come up to that level of milliamps. So it's it, it better um, uh, um, replicates a voluntary contraction, which is a gradual increase in intention. So it, it's understanding all of that. You get or encourage, obviously, depending on the person, but do you get them to think of trying to contract while there's a contraction happening with the machine? Well, that's another whole aspect of it as well. There is research to show, and we know that you can actually get the correct parts of the motor cortex lighting up when you just think about doing a particular action. There's some very interesting papers out there looking at that. Should we be trying to contract with the, the stimulation? Should we be trying to imagine that contraction? You know, what, and I think a part of that is one of the things that we, we don't do. We just, here you go, here's your electrode, here's your machine, do it three times a week, come back in six weeks. There's the argument for, for doing um, the motor imagery stuff as well. And there's also uh, a big argument, I believe, in doing functional work straight away afterwards, which is what they do with stroke rehab, it's what they do with um, large muscle group rehab. 
if we've done some stimulation, then you get the patient to do the, the contractions themselves and then try and do a functional activity. Um, and I think that's something that's missing in our programs when we're looking at stimulation for the pelvic floor. Because it's not something, it's never something you see in the research that's done. I'd be interested in feedback from people in the clinic because mainly the feedback I've had is that, you know, they give you the machine to the patient, the patient goes and uses it, but there's no instruction to try and use that contraction immediately after when it's, you've got, and they've shown in the research, if you, you use the muscle within that short period after the stimulation, you're going to get a better voluntary contraction and you're going to get that sort of sensory motor integration. Um, you know, do you get your patient to do a couple of coughs? Do you get your, and trying to contract, do you get the patient to do some squats or some sit to stand, some functional activities and trying to use the muscle in the correct way? The whole idea is that we want to transfer or transition from a stimulated contraction to a voluntary contraction. So um, you don't just suddenly stop and then expect them to start to be able to do that voluntary contraction. There's got to be that sort of crossover period and that learning, motor learning um, aspect to it. So do you find there's a cohort of women who it's more beneficial for? Like as if somebody's... Um, relatively, you know, if there are three plus out of five modified Oxford scale, or even a four is electrical stimulation. Again, I know because it totally depends on what they're in for or what's happening, but is it, do you find that it's more beneficial for those who are in that lower range as opposed to those who might be in a higher range? The, uh, the only research we have talks about the lower range. And as I said before, there's nothing for the, well, there's no real need if you've got a grade four that is functional that they can, you know, use and they're non-symptomatic, there's no point. Um, but there is that small group that I believe we could make use of some STEM for to teach them the correct action. And you'd only need to use it for short periods of time. Um, and if you're doing that, then using one a, a, an electrode that has a um, biofeedback stick on it is really helpful because they can actually see, I think they're really helpful for everybody, but um, you can actually see what's happening and then they can use it as a pelvic floor educator um, biofeedback tool themselves. So we've just been talking about kind of the vaginal probes, but there is this all the same thing applies. There's anal probes and you can use it for external anal sphincter. Is that right? An anal probe, yep, you can. Um, I also encourage any uh, physio who is prescribing STEM for their patients to actually give it a go themselves using an anal electrode and using a vaginal, not at the same time. Um, because it's very interesting. Yes, you would, you'd be aiming for the external anal sphincter if you're going uh, uh, with an anal one, but you're also getting puborectalis. But you can also get quite a reasonable feeling of more of the posterior part of the levator ani working. Um, and that's, I've certainly had great discussions with some of the people who've, who've done my course with me face to face about using a, for particularly ladies with an avulsion, and particularly someone with a, say, a bilateral avulsion, where you're not going to get contact with a vaginal electrode or not effective contra uh, contact, is to think outside the box and, and try perhaps to get some activation to use a um, anal electrode with some stimulation so that they're making the most of what, what they do have. 
obviously the caution there has to be if you've got someone who's become very overactive in the posterior part of their levator ani as a compensatory um, uh, thing for their, their avulsion. But that comes down to your clinical assessment of, of that patient. As I said, right back at the beginning, some of the, one of the theories that, um, of how it works is that sensory input and we're getting that, you know, wakening up the sensory motor cortex is even getting some sensation. It doesn't matter how you get it in there, but you can start to get some um, connection then with, with the pelvic floor and, get, you know, some people then can start uh, getting a decent voluntary contraction just from that sort of um, aspect of it. You can also use the anal electrodes vaginally for females or for someone who's really quite quite small. But I will just reiterate there that would be one that you have not used anally on that patient. So you know if you've got a patient who wants to use both, they need an electrode for each um, each orifice. They shouldn't be using the same one. Why would you need a smaller one for someone with that? not be indicative that they have too much tension or it's just structurally that's the way they're built okay sorry that's probably more for your pain patients so okay. ladies with a very small introitus or or a very tiny levator hiatus so you can use an internal probe for um for pain patient uh, for muscle stem or tens but more for tens yeah okay even as I talk to people and even as we go through it, people, there's still that concept, what is the difference between electrical stimulation and TENS? And the nomenclature is something that's somhow confusing. When we're, we're asking questions on, you know, in the forums on Facebook, people talk about using STEM or e-STEM. If you're talking about neuromuscular electrical stimulation or NMES or e-STEM, you're talking about using it to stimulate a muscle contraction. Whereas if we're talking about TENS, we don't want muscle contraction. Um, although with, with low, low level TENS, you can get the acupuncture light, you will get little fasciculations in the muscle, but it's not functional. So what is the difference? The, different, the main differences are TENS is used on a constant, there's no work rest. So it's on constantly. E-STEM has a work rest. So there's an on and an off. So you're getting contract and relax. So that's one of the main differences. The second big difference is that it depends where in the range of hertz you're working. So if you're working on the very low range, not to 10 hertz, you're looking at a sensory. You're not going to get muscle stim. If you are, it's only little fasciculations. Once you start to hit around 20 hertz upwards, you're getting a tetanic contraction. So, um, and then beyond that, now you will have people who will argue against this. Um, I've yet to see any research that's done muscle stim past 50 hertz. Generally, we'll sit around that 40. Again, as we discussed before, because there's that sensory um, aspect and you've got to balance getting um, a comfortable contraction. Once we start to get higher beyond that 50, it becomes quite, you do get a contraction, but it's so uncomfortable um, that you're not going to tolerate it for e-stim, but it becomes much more sensory. So if you don't have your electrodes over motor points um, and you use, by that stage, we're using it externally for, for sensory aspect, you, um, you're just going to get a sensory input. You're not going to get the, the muscle contraction. So TENS is used at low and high frequency and e-stim, if you're going to use that term, is used in that mid-range. Mid 
as long as you can set a work rest function on it, any old machine will do either or. As long as you can set constant or a work rest. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. You're, you're, um, you're looking like, whoa. <laughs> but that's, that's one of the big things that I think is misunderstood. What is the difference between them? And um, if you're choosing a machine, you need to choose a machine that allows you to manipulate so you can work out what you can do with that machine yeah. and how you can use it. Is there a list of patients or types of people that you wouldn't use electrical stimulation through for pelvic floor? Like other than what we talked about earlier where that somebody's got a relatively good strength and you probably don't need it. But if you, you were saying like if somebody has a bilateral avulsion, you may actually, you shouldn't use it, you know, if they've got anally if they've got this um, compensation mechanism that it's not appropriate. And I know all this comes down to clinical reasoning, but do you know of like certain circumstances where someone has maybe sent you a message and you go, well, that's not appropriate use to use electrical stimulation in that type of patient. Does anything come to mind as to who it might not be appropriate for? Well, the patients that we've spoken about, someone who's got mesh inserted, you know, that's another big controversial one. There's no evidence at all, and I have done quite an extensive search to find evidence that using STEM, um, and we, I, I go into this in a contraindication section, um, but my personal view is that we shouldn't with someone with, with mesh in situ, but not for the reasons that everyone assumes. Um, and the assumption is that does it conduct the, the current? A, we don't know that, but B, um, I think the bigger risk is, you know, causing strong contractions might actually, if someone is close to erosion, you don't want to be um, adding any factors in there that might hasten that process at all. So I would be very strongly cautious of, um, it's not something that I would do. I have no evidence for that. But safe to use in pelvic organ prolapse. Yeah, if you, as long as you yeah. can get an electrode to to sit effectively and get contact yeah. with the the muscles that you're aiming to stimulate, then there's no reason at all why you shouldn't. And in fact, there's reason to say, um, you know, if you, if if weak a weak pelvic floor is contributing to that, then you know we should be doing everything that we can. Um, and that comes down to, you know, we're talking about inhibited muscles can't contract properly. And if you've got a prolapse that's sitting, you know, down below the levators, then it's going to inhibit the, um, the contraction of the, the levators. And, you know, there is research showing that um, putting a pessary in and lifting the, the organs up, you'll often get a um, good improvement in the muscle, the levators, because they can function more effectively. You, you have a whole course on this. We could talk about it for a very long time, but I just wanted to highlight, well, look, to be honest, I just wanted some one-on-one -on -one time with you so that you could answer some of my own personal <laughs> questions. Um, but I know every time that I listen to you speak on this topic, um, I go, oh, yeah, okay. I have so many patients in mind. I'm going to go out and buy all these probes. I already have the machines. I just need to use them a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would just say, learn to use them appropriately for the, the right patients, learn to use them effectively. Um, and it, it's just that really boils down to, to understanding how they work and then understanding the parameters and really understanding how you can manipulate the parameters to suit the patient.
So it's not a one size, you know, I talk about cookie cutters in um, when I teach there's, there's no one cookie cutter, although the preset programs will lead you to believe that there, there are, um, but we can, we can alter those to suit, to suit the patient. Um, and I would love to see the program names changed, <laughs> but um, that, that's, that's another issue. Um, and yeah, I just don't leave it to a last resort. Um, again, I iterate, I'm not saying every patient needs STEM, but it's learning to work out which ones it might work for. And generally it will be bringing that in earlier in the treatment paradigm, whether, whether it's TENS or, or e-STEM. Um, but learning to understand it um, and that's what I hope to do or aim to do. And certainly from feedback I've had from the face-to-face -face courses is what we're achieving with that is, is people are, are learning. You know all the principles. You've been through uni. You've learnt the physiology. It's just learning to apply it in this particular arena. So we can't get away from using our brain? No, not really. <laughs> and not getting away from using clinical reasoning and common sense as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. Um, and again, I'll probably end up asking you to come back to teach us all about lots of other different things. Tens for one, everything else. To oh, that's do one of my pet topics. I love the topic of tens and OAB. It's just, um, yeah. Oh, OAB. Yeah, we have not even touched on OAB. That is on my list. That has been on my list. It's coming. It's just, you know, 2020. Our hashtag starts with an F. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for having me, Laurie. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to support the podcast and have access to some extra episodes, you can head over to the Pelvic Health Podcast. Podbean com and click on the little green button become a patron and you can choose to pledge one dollar or two dollars us per month you can cancel at any time so you can even do one dollar have access for the month to all of the extra episodes and then come back at another time i hope everyone is enjoying these episodes and stay safe <laughs>